Good evening to you all. For those of you who have been here for the whole month, uh, you recognize that you've heard a series of talks on the progress of insight. And we're going to continue on with that theme tonight. This will be my last talk of the month and the final talk on this topic. And tonight we're going to focus on what are called the dukkha jnanas and touch on equanimity, high equanimity, which is the subsequent stage of practice. But since Many of you have not been here since the beginning of the month, of course, since we have open enrollment here at the Forest Refuge most of the time. I'll give you a recap of what's been covered. And even if you have heard this material in the previous talks, you might find something new or different in it, or maybe it will land in a a more grounded way for you in the repeated hearing of some of the some of the precursor uh, stages before you get to the dukkhanyanas. So in the first talk I gave on the progress of insight, I talked about why insight meditation is called insight meditation. And the gist of it is this sort of practice is intended to bring the mind out of the level of concept, which is so intertwined with delusion and uh, mental elaboration that often has a self-focus. It's designed to bring it out of that level of functioning into direct contact with immediate experience, immediate sensory experience in particular, but also including uh, observation of what's going on at the mind or And the idea is, if delusion is the cause of our suffering, delusion gives rise to the craving that we uh, can recognize as suffering, but delusion is really the root of it, then in order to end suffering, you need to end delusion. And how do you end delusion? Well, you could say you end delusion by sustained contact with direct reality until the mind finally acknowledges what it's actually seeing, what it's actually perceiving in the the course of practice. So if you consider what the meditation instructions tend to be there along the lines of, for instance, turn your mind towards the direct experience of the sensations at the touch points and just know them for what they are. Or turn your awareness towards the feeling of your feet on the floor, what the immediate sensory experience of that is, away from the concepts about it, like my feet are sweaty. No, no feet are sweaty. What does it feel like? <laughs> they may indeed be sweaty, but what, what does it feel like? What do the feet, what is actually known there? What's, what's the input? And the mind is turned again and again to that level and away from concept. So the, the method brings mindful awareness and directs it to this immediate present moment experience in a way that eventually allows that kind of awareness to be sustained. And when this awareness, this mindful awareness is sustained at the level of moment to moment experience, and the hindrances aren't getting in the way, then something called access concentration arises, which means Okay, the mind is now knowing one thing after another as it presents itself. So this access, access concentration, this mindfulness sustained 
with a flow of changing objects. So this can be known as different objects coming and going, or could, you could notice change within objects. So you might notice, okay, sitting, sitting, sensations of sitting, and then hearing, hearing, oh, hearing. Oh, pleasant, oh. Perception of a bird, oh, right? So you're staying in the present, you're kind of calling out what you're experiencing moment after moment if you're using noting. Or perhaps the mind, if it's a little more settled down, might notice in the breath, there's a number of different kinds of sensations. There might be a whole set of things that are known on the in-breath and maybe the pause is a different kind of experience and then there's the knowing of what's going on in the out-breath. And then maybe there arises a thought in the mind and there's a recognition, oh, that's a thought, oh, that's anger. Oh, this is what anger feels like in the body. So this is the way that access concentration can present itself to be known where the mind is pretty much with what's happening. The things themselves are changing, both in type and in terms of how they're subjectively experienced, but the mind is staying with it, staying with it. So when access concentration is established, and noticing uh, becomes more sustained, there's fewer gaps, there's fewer blank spots, and the mind starts to be able to perceive more, to actually see more. It's almost as if the microscope of the mind, if you want to put it that way, has kind of come into focus and you can see what's going on there. And then the mind is seeing the meditation objects, whatever they are, these changing objects, as they are at this very simple level that I've described, immediate, non-conceptual. This leads the mind into seeing and recognition of what are called the first three insights of Vipassana meditation. And the first of these is the mind starts to recognize that there's basically two different things that can be going on if you break it down into categories. There's the experience of mentality, what's going on with the mind, with consciousness, and there's the experience of materiality, what is going on with the body. So for instance, you may get get the understanding, okay, there's the back pain, and then there's the thought about the back pain. They both might both be unpleasant and (laughs) suffering, but they're two different things. Seeing this, body and mind, this is called, or awareness of consciousness and object. So the second insight that arises is called knowledge of cause and effect, or knowledge of conditionality, or, or comprehending the cause of phenomenon. And this is when the mind starts to realize, okay, things condition each other. There's one experience that happens, for instance, accidentally, you know, jam your foot in the door when you're going out, sense contact. There arises the feeling of pain next experience. There's a noticing that it's unpleasant. Then noticing that you don't like it. You want it to go away. And then, for instance, noticing that anger happens. And then with the anger, there's a whole set of sensations. So that whole experience of getting angry and having those body sensations had a whole set of causes and conditions that were precedent to it, some of which you can uh, see and some of which you don't know. Because there are many, many causes and conditions that go into any 
arising that can be known. So we might start to notice what makes us head to the bathroom. Okay, there's a physical sensation. There's some perception of, of, of it and what it means. And then there's almost like a little energetic blip in the body. And before you know it, you find yourself standing in the hall and walking down the hall to get to the restroom. Cause and effect, intention arising, causing subsequent action. The mind starts to understand, well, things are conditioned. Everything is, is conditioned. Things aren't just happening out of the blue for no reason. And we start to get a hint, well, things are kind of happening with less uh, control than I think I have and would like to have. Right? Have you noticed this? You can't really control what you experience moment to moment. More on that later. And then the third of these first insights is called seeing the three characteristics where after watching different objects of meditation come and go as they do one after another when access concentration is established, you start to realize at a certain point, hmm, there's some common things about them. First of all, I just said it, they come and go. They're impermanent. From that, then is the beginning of the insight into dukkha that because they're impermanent and because they're, they're conditioned, they can't really be turned to for lasting satisfaction. None of them nada. Hmm. Not stable, right? Not able to give that payoff of uh, making it right and keeping it good and keeping it being the way we think it should. And then the third aspect of this is not self. Realizing that if things are impermanent and they're, because they're conditioned and they're unstable and therefore dukkha, I guess that means that I'm not in control of it. Right? The teaching of not self, that things happen in an, a lawful unfolding. They're not being governed by some kind of master control that is moi, that's behind the whole process and kind of making it happen. So in this first phase, with these first through three insights, the mind through being brought into close contact with experience, starts to notice some important things about what it's seeing. So it starts to recognize the above facts about how reality presents itself upon close examination and some discernment starts to develop. And these first three understandings are really foundational to the other openings or the other learnings or the other uh, knowledges that arise in um, the development of insight and the progress of insight. Now, the talk I gave last week, I talked about getting an experience of what's called the arising and passing away of phenomenon. And this is when mindfulness stationed in the present really starts to notice that everything that happens has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end or a first arising, a kind of standing or manifestation, and then it passes away. And in this stage, the experiences, it, then it's followed by something else that arises, manifests, and passes away. So there, there's a sense of being able to clearly see, okay, this comes into being, it manifests, then it passes away. And then this other thing comes into being in the present, manifests and passes away. Right? So you're really seeing this um, stream of ongoing experience quite clearly. And when the mind is like this, when it's kind of 
working at this level can be really clear and energetic and the practice can seem to be uh, doing itself. And it can be very pleasant to be able to experience things clearly and have the practice feel like it's kind of effortless. And there are often many kinds of new practice experiences that, that can arise. And I talked about the 10, what are called the 10 corruptions of insight or, uh, you know, there's sometimes softer ways of putting this, right? The uh, immature uh, insights and what those kinds of things are. So that, that would be meditation phenomenon like uh, light or illumination joy and, and rapture accompanied by various thrills and chills of the, the body and the mind, you know, strong feelings of peace and tranquility, strong feelings of pleasantness and comfort, uh, lots of energy and zeal to practice unceasingly, right? Because it's easy and there's energy and it's clear and it's like, why not, you know? Um, there can be some faith real strong faith that arises sometimes of an unbalanced uh, nature. Maybe a lot of Dharma thinking and, you know, excitement. No, no, I see what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about, you know, the impermanence of the five aggregates or whatever. And then uh, something called Nikanti, which is a kind of subtle craving and relishing and enjoyment of these particular things. Kind of satisfaction at the pleasantness of how, it's, how it all is and how, how it's going. So interestingly enough, the practice gets to this arising and passing away, jnana, by good practice. So, the things that I just mentioned, or at least most of them, are actually a manifestation that the practice has been good because things are opening. There's clear seeing of this particular manifestation. They're called, these kinds of things are called corruptions of insight because if they're misunderstood, if they're clung to, if attachment develops in relationship to these things and the uh, yogi forgets what the basic practice instructions are and starts to treat these things as a special case, either becoming unduly fascinated with them or wanting to hold on to them, or in some cases because uh, they're unfamiliar, you know, getting freaked out about them because like, what's going on here? So if the, if the mind doesn't remember to practice with them, doesn't see, for instance, the relishing going on and the wanting to keep it going and looking for it again and trying to manufacture, you know, these particular states, then you basically plateau at best in terms of your practice and because you've abandoned mindfulness, because you're no longer remembering the practice instructions, the practice actually starts to go in retrograde motion and then the hindrances come in and Oh, you know what that's like. Unpleasant, unpleasant Vedana. But if the yogi is willing and able to maintain a mindful, non-attached rela- relationship with these kinds of manifestations, you know, maybe rebalancing how they're practicing if that's necessary. For instance, if there's like a lot, a lot of energy and, you know, there's, the system's amped up. You know, it might be good to rebalance how the practice is going. But if they uh, remember the basic practice instructions and relate to these experiences as just other arising experiences, then the practice can continue to open. So, which does not mean that the practice will continue to get clearer and clearer and more and more pleasant. But we think that should be it, right? So there's a new learning or new territory that then opens after the arising and passing 
a phenomenon has been experienced and clearly seen, and that's the practice in the zone of what's called the dukkha jnanas. So, remember I said, okay, being able to see the arising and passing, that's the result of good practice. And it can feel satisfying when it's like that. You know, you, we, you get the feeling of knowing how to do it. Okay, I got, I got this down. You know, I've got this down. And those of you who have been practicing for a long time have probably learned that as soon as you have that thought, I've got this practice down and I, it kind of dumps you, right? The horse decides it's going to run under a branch and, you know, all the pride about being such a good rider <laughs> uh, feels a little bit embarrassing. You know, just as the self-sense is owning the success of the process, which it has gotten interesting and satisfying, things start to get wobbly. Things. You might ask, what kind of things? Well, instead of practice getting better and better, they, it feels like it starts to slide. As it turns out, that stage of arising and passing phenomenon is a stage, it's a cycle, it's a particular cycle of practice, it's conditioned too. And as we are reminded over and over again, if it's conditioned, that means it's impermanent. And if, if, if it's impermanent, it means at some point it's going to pass away. So, you know, this is the entry into a practice learning period called the Dukkanyanas, where the mind learns about suffering. It learns about Dukkha. It takes a close-up experiential tour of the three characteristics, and the implications of the three characteristics come into the foreground of the mind experientially. So let me do some overview comments about the Dukkanyanas. And these are what are called the insights five through 10. You know, like, oh God, five through 10. Couldn't we just like have one, (laughs) get it over with? So there are a number of these with uh, various degrees of difficulty and misery attached to them. And while they're listed as different stages, in reality, they're often experienced as somewhat indistinct from each other. And they do have some things in common, and that is that practice is no longer fun. In fact, uh, it becomes very clear that whatever insight meditation practice is, progressive stress reduction is not the appropriate descriptor. Okay. So it turns out that our delusion removal project has its challenging phases, and this is really one of them. So some of the titles of these stages give you a hint. So I'll go through and I'll give you some of the titles of these particular stages, and then I'll go back with a descriptor of what they're like internally. So um, there, five is knowledge of dissolution, knowledge of passing away, knowledge of dissolution. Uh, Six is knowledge of fearfulness. Seven is knowledge of danger, sometimes called knowledge of misery. Eight is knowledge of disenchantment. Nine is desire for deliverance. And 10 is reobservation. Those are cheerful titles. So, a, a couple preliminary points to make is how long these will be present in your practice depends. It's quite individual. It's possible to be in these. Uh, 
state your stages for a long time, especially if you stop practicing. So how long you're in these stages really varies. Some people move through them pretty quickly. Partially depends on whether the mind can remember the primary task, the simple basic set of instructions and continue to apply them as best it can even when it starts to be like this. So this is one of the reasons why when I work with people individually, I always make a point of telling them if I think it's maybe new information for them, that meditation isn't always pleasant. Because we have this, you know, like if somebody came in through the stress reduction door and they had no idea that you could get into this kind of territory, and then this kind of thing started happening, of course they would have to be well into practice for it to happen. They could have the idea that it's all fallen apart, that there's something wrong about their practice, that, you know, they're an incompetent meditator, that, you know, they were doing so well and now they're doing really bad and uh, completely lose faith in themselves and the practice and uh, abandon the ship. And this is one of the reasons why when you go in and tell your teacher, you talk about, you know, it's so clear and it's easy and it's like this and the teacher will go, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And say something like, well, you know, just just watch for clinging. <laughs> right? They're trying to keep you from setting yourself up <laughs> for the big fall. Right? So um, this is an area of practice where you really draw on the spiritual faculties, especially faith, which uh, has to do with confidence in the basic teachings of the Buddha, but also self-confidence. Self-confidence. And you can see how important it is when you get to, to these stages that the mind has internalized wise attitude which is the understanding that renunciation, meaning giving up the attempt to turn everything into you know, a pleasant and satisfying experience and keeping it that way, renunciation of the pursuit of sense pleasure as the point of things, and the cultivation of compassion, the cultivation of metta, are really important. Because you're hitting tough stuff and you need to be able to let go, let go, let go, let go of the idea of how it should be, let go of the idea of you should be doing it better, let go of the idea that you're doing it wrong, let go, let go, just be with what is directly perceived and have enough self-support and kindness towards yourself that when you get to the rolling up the mat stage, your own heart comes forward and goes, oh, yeah, baby cakes, it is hard, right? It is hard. It is hard. Here, have a piece of chocolate. (laughs) 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 Or whatever you do for yourself, right? But you can see, you know, the the importance of cultivating uh, an inner relationship to your own dukkha that skillful is really important because when you get into these stages when the dukkha is really flying, if, you, if the mind is trained not to abandon itself when it gets tough, you've got a tremendous practice resource. Right? So all that stuff at the beginning of the Eightfold Path, right after Wise View, where the Buddha is talking about wise attitude, cultivation of renunciation, the cultivation of compassion and metta, it's right up at the front for a reason. So let's go through what these are and how they manifest. So the first of them 
the knowledge of dissolution or the knowledge of passing away. So this starts when the clarity of the arising and passing stage starts to weaken. So when it starts to weaken, i.e. the cycle starts to decay of perception being known in the way that I've I described as being, you know, clear and effortless and interesting and pleasant and all the rest of it. That cycle starts to decay. Then often the yogi attempts to reassert what was experienced as pleasant, interesting and satisfying and supportive of a sense of mastery, right? The mind like tries to chase it and get it back. Oh God, it was going so good. Now it's like, what am I doing wrong? How can I make that, that come back, you know? But when it starts to be in this uh, dissolution stage, the mind doesn't notice the arising, standing, and passing away so clearly. And instead, awareness really tends to recognize the passing away of experience. And that sense of close connection to the meditation object that you had in the previous stage, that's no longer present either. So the objects can seem unsteady and even vague and the pleasantness is gone. The pleasantness of the previous stage is gone. So now the practice is to be as present as possible with things as, as they are, as they are. This is the hallmark of all of the practice. But you really need to remind yourself, especially of this point at certain stages. So if the yogi tries to go back to how it was, you know, wants to reclaim the thrills and chills of the previous stage, then the practice starts to fail. So you start to get the arising of a lot more hindrances and all the rest of it because mindfulness has been abandoned, right? You've forgotten the instructions. You're doing something else now. You're grasping to try to create or recreate, or engineer, or fabricate, however you want to put it, something that, it, that has just passed away because the causes and conditions that supported its arising are no longer present. So, so you're trying to grabby-grab at something that is gone, baby gone. So this is a test of renunciation of the mind being willing to be present with things as they present themselves, even when they're no longer present. Uh, pleasant or clear. So the next one is fearfulness. And this takes place when the yogi starts to recognize fear which arises with the recognition that conditioned things are unstable. So on the first one you're starting to see the instability of it, right? You're starting to see things passing away, things going over the event horizon, slipping away, the mind can't, can't get, uh, grab them. But this instability of conditioned things becomes clearer and more visible. And it becomes clear that they're just following their own path and they're not under our control. So you're starting to see this perception is a manifestation of connecting with the three characteristics, right? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So, but here, the three characteristics are really being manifesting experientially, moment to moment. So with this, you know, intimations of our mor- mortality may arise, you know, memories of losses of various types. Uh, objects can seem increasingly unstable and there's not happiness or pleasantness or enjoyment in the practice on the cushion and off the cushion either. So happy days are gone. Right, you're right in the dukkha now. So then the test for the practitioner is the same as it was in the previous, which is, can they open to this state, recognize what they're experiencing, however blurry or indistinct it might be, 
and practice with it with mindfulness and faith. And this involves the paramis, things like patience, resolve, uh, you know, virya, courageous uh, effort. All of these qualities of mind really are brought into play, really brought online. Wisdom. So all those qualities of mind really support the yogi in being able to continue to practice with the strong, unpleasant physical and emotional states that are characteristic of this period. So the next one, the next stage, and again, you know, these are presented as classically described as separate stages, but in my experience in reality is they tend to overlap and kind of blur with each other. Uh, misery and danger. So this again, this is more of the above, but a bit intensified. So uh, irritation and various other negative mental states can be strong as the objects are vague, indistinct, and unclear. So if the the practitioner has maintained some mindfulness, even with stuff behaving like this, manifesting in this way, then the three characteristics are pretty clearly visible. So what once was theory, yeah, I got this teaching on the three characteristics, yeah, it's true, it used to be day and now it's night, yeah, that's impermanent, I can see it. Okay, I used to be a a young dude and now I got gray hair, okay, I get it. You're now seeing the truth of that on a moment-to-moment level. So you see things slipping out of awareness, being deeply unpleasant and out of control and ungovernable. So you can see the, the uh, importance of faith in here, right? Because it's like, oh my God, what is going on here? Can this be right? I can remember go- going through some of this ter- territory and you know, just at a certain point being like really perplexed, like, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> I must be doing something wrong that is like this. And really taking a look, well, you know, what am I doing differently? You know, am I, what am I doing differently? Am I doing something that's really different? And kind of going back through, you know, like, what am I, how did I mess it up? And eventually coming to the conclusion, well, Actually, I'm not doing anything differently. And then there arose in my mind some kind of um, faith that, well, if I'm not doing anything differently, then maybe that's, it's just how it is right now. So the next stage is disenchantment. <laughs> disenchantment. So here, the downside of conditionality is really in the yogi's face. So, you know, it's clear that conditioned things are unstable. And then, of course, the mind is starting to generalize that conditioned things are unstable. And let's see, all things are conditioned. So the mind goes to, well, there's no payoff in this, right? There's no payoff of the kind that we look for in phenomenon individually or in any combination of things, right? Because it's all unstable. So at this point, the whole process seems kind of tireless, a tiresome and pointless, kind of depression-inducing, kind of like, well, what is the point of this anyway, you know? Sadness and feelings of uh, loss might be dominant emotional states. So the practice can really hit the doldrums, why try? You know, and at some of these states, the suffering that arises in our minds can actually be displayed in, in terms of our own particular personal narrative, right? Like I can remember at certain points in this, probably about right around here, sitting and, you know, having images of uh, 
people I loved who had passed away and the breaking of, uh, you know, connection because of that, that loss and, and the mind kind of going, but that's true of everybody, but that's true of any kind of connection I'll have. That's true of, you know, me too. It's like there's nothing there. It's like, oh my God. It's like I'm not going to find it in its own terms. In the terms in which things, conditioned things exist, I'm not going to find it. It's not there. It's not there. And you can see the effect of that, right? Of realizing I can't find it in what I can know in this way. It's not there in any one thing. It's not there in any combination of things. It's not there. It's not available. So again, you know, the task is to open to what is happening the best that you can and to not collapse under the difficulty and the unpleasantness, but to continue to practice with how things are, including acknowledging this is grief. You know, this is existential despair. This is... This is what it feels like in the body. This is wanting, wanting it not to be this way. So you see this path of practice, this arc of practice in this kind of meditation brings our human longings for things to be a certain way that we can control, that we can govern, that we can get to be right and keep. It winds up bringing us that view, that desire, that craving, laced with delusion and laced with compassion that it is, into direct contact, into direct seeing of how it actually is. When you go down to the basic level of perception and watch what is there, what actually manifests. So we go on to nine, the desire for deliverance. So you could also call this the get me the hell out of here stage. <laughs> so this is you know, classically where the, the yogi is ready to uh, roll up the mat, is the classic phrase. Roll up the mat and go home to mama. Um, so teachers are really important here in all of these stages. So teacher support is really vital to help the yogi stay the course and to continue practicing through and with the difficulty that arises. So, you know, the teacher also may have to hide your car keys. You know, I've got your keys, come and see me. <laughs> of course, you can always call a limo, but, you know, you need money to do that, so you maybe should hand over the wallet too. But... Um, so it's really important for a teacher to remind people that you know, you're not experiencing a collapse of your, your practice, that you're experiencing another impermanent state, another particular cycle of perception where dukkha is really highlighted. So I can go, remember going in talking to one of my teachers when it was like this. Um, and the teacher telling me this story, said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, when I hit this territory, I went to see my teacher, and he just smiled at me and said, that's really good. He said, you know, the suffering to end suffering. I thought, that's really good, huh? That's really good. But it's a necessary see. So, you know, the you got to call on your sila, you got to call on your wholesome qualities, you got to keep going. So even the sense of failure, futility, incompetence is something that can be practiced with, however awkward that might feel. So at this stage, one way or another, you want it over with, right? Either by pushing through to a breakthrough or by accepting defeat and attempting to flee, to get away from it, so you don't have to experience it anymore. So the next step, the last of these, where things start to cut over, things start to move into a different kind of zone, is called reobservation. And here the, the yogi, assuming that they haven't actually gone home to mama, recommits to working as best as possible with whatever is 
perceived, however it presents itself, no matter how wonky it seems or unpleasant. So there's just a kind of turning around. It's like, well, I can, I can see because of what I am seeing that I cannot actually escape this. So if I cannot actually escape it and I cannot actually make it stop, then I guess I, I got to practice with it. There's nothing else to be done, right? It's here, it's happening. It's happening, it's going. Let me practice with this as best as I am able. And there's a digging down into the internal reserves. So, and with that, <clears throat> concentration starts to deepen and the practice starts to move again. So, there can actually be a strengthening of physical pain, but the mind resolves to be present unconditionally. One of the things I forgot to mention in all these cycles is it's common for there to be physical pain too. Right? All that sense of ease and well-being and stuff that you get in the arising and passing away, it's not like that anymore. There can be restlessness, there can be various body pains, there can be... (laughs) It's just not pleasant. But here, with reobservation, concentration starts to strengthen and the mind resolves to be present unconditionally. So the bargaining is over here and the mind starts to tip in the direction of unconditional connected acceptance of whatever version of the three characteristics arise just as they are. So it starts to say, okay, (laughs) I give up. I give up with wanting it to be other than how it is actually manifesting. And this is the last stage of the dukkanyana. And the next knowing is in relationship to equanimity. So it's a very interesting thing, just like that Ajahn Brahm story that I told you a few days about when he was talking about having a toothache and how he tried everything and it was horrible and he couldn't stand it and it wouldn't go away and he tried chanting and he tried walking and he tried concentration and he tried this and he tried that and he tried to like beat it and he tried to... And finally when he let go, when he fully accepted that it was there and like really let go, things changed. Things changed. And this whole process, as you can see, uh, especially through these last cycles that we've talked about, has really driven the body-mind system into some stage of accepting the truth of what it's experiencing and then the energies begin to go into wise relationship with the truth of these three characteristics instead of delusion about them or fighting with them or resistance to their implications or, you know, grasping at something different that would be pleasant, that would support the covering up of this truth. So the dukkha ends when the resistance ends. The dukkha goes. So then there's the the arising of equanimity, which is basically the end of struggle. Now you've been cultivating equanimity all along in insight practice, right? When you consider the instructions that are given over and over again, especially if you're on a classical retreat where they give uh, progressive instructions. Or you come in and talk to a teacher and you'll be talking about how you were with the breath or you were with this or that and then something else happened and the teacher will just encourage you to recognize what that new thing is and open to that, right? Or you'll come in and you say, well, you know, I experienced this and it was unpleasant and the teacher, instead of saying, oh, unpleasant, you poor dear, 
my, what can I apply to, what spackle can I apply to your mind to remove that experience for you? The teacher will say, and, and did you notice it was unpleasant? And what kind of unpleasantness was it? Was it mental or was it physical? Where did you know? And, and you know, we, was there a follow-on experience to that unpleasantness? Was, did the mind feel aversion to that? Or did the mind, you know, what happened then? You ever notice teachers talk to you like that? It's kind of weird. It's a little different than, you know, normal social interactions with people. And I had this happen. It was so difficult. It was so unpleasant. Oh, are you poor, right? Oh, come here. Are you okay? He hug you. Can I give you a hug? And the teacher says, no. And, and how was that? What was that experience like, right? Tell me about that. What was that? How did that manifest? And what was the attitude of mind towards that? Okay. You, you see embedded in the instructions <coughs> a coaching of the yogi about what mindfulness is in relationship to various experiences and then a suggestion a very strong suggestion <coughs> that as best you're able you should just attend to what you're actually experiencing attending to everything in the same kind of way doing what you need to do to sustain mindfulness right but not preferring certain things and not preferring other things right? and one, liking and not liking. Of course, those exist. But, you know, attempting to refrain from op- operationalizing those. <laughs> right? So these are all coachings in the direction of the mind, being able to relate to its immediate experience with recognition, mindfulness, acceptance, in the interest of cultivating equanimity about what its immediate experience is. And as you go along in practice, you get more and more skilled at this. So here we are at equanimity. And this is called high equanimity. So it's a kind of culmination state from the progression through these various uh, preliminary insights that I've described tonight. So here the mind has seen through and eventually dropped its resistance to what arises and passes away. So it, it has ended its bargaining. It just accepts what's happening moment to moment the way it's presented. So now it's just attending to what's actually there. But this process at, of arising at equanimity is very much like what the Buddha went through on the night of his own enlightenment. For those of you who know the classical story where he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and then he was assailed by various things. And he was uh, assailed by things to allure him into following sense desire. He was assailed by things that represented fear and aggression images of flaming arrows and horrible smells and shrieks of things that might seem like they would be harmful. And then finally, the last thing that was he was assailed by was by Mara coming to him and basically saying to him, who do you think you are? You think you can get, be the Buddha? You think you can open this up for other people, understand it. Who do you think you are? The doubt, doubt related to worthiness. And if you remember how the story went, there was the the Buddha touched the earth and the earth touching mudra and asked the earth itself to testify to his goodness, to the strength of his sila and the, the integrity of his motivation. So we ourselves go through a parallel process to this. So arising, arriving at equanimity. 
we ourselves call upon our own wholesome qualities to move through the dukkha jnanas. And then we find like the Buddha, the, the door to understanding starts to open after the dark night has passed. So with the arising of this high equanimity, the painful sensations of the difficult stages pretty much disappear. The mind is tranquil and peaceful, very stable. Well, of course it's very stable because it's okay with the mind whatever is experienced. It's got no resistance to what it's experiencing. So it's not being pushed around by the Vedana, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or uh, relative neutrality of the feeling tone of what is being known. So concentration greatly strengthens. The mind becomes pliant and wieldy. And it's easy to attend to whatever is there. It's kind of, you, you just are perceiving it, just being seen, just as it is, how it comes up, how it arises, how it manifests. So there's a kind of clarity of vision and the mind is undisturbed by what is known, accepts things very matter-of-factly with little follow-on reaction. The body is comfortable, it's able to sit for long periods of time again. And, you know, this state can deepen and deepen and deepen and become very deep indeed. But probably the most important thing to know about it is it emerges from developing the capacity to be with the full range of things, including things that, you know, organically from our perspective of, you know, biologically conditioned human beings, we really don't want to feel, we don't want to know. And certain insights into the the uh, insecure nature of conditioned reality that, you know, we would really <laughs> not like it to be like that, right? But the mind has been brought into connection with all of that and has learned to accept it, learn to see it, learn to accept it, and then has found resolution and a higher understanding of how to hold it, how it can not be suffering anymore through the cultivation of this kind of deep balance of mind. So the important thing to, to know, uh, an important thing to know about the state of high equanimity is this is the state from which the mind actually can open to the unconditioned. So, you know, in our understanding of things, you know, we may have the idea, for instance, when we're in the arising and passing away state, I think I mentioned last week that, you know, sometimes people think, okay, I can feel it, you know, like I'm close to Nibbana. You know, it could happen at any minute now, you know. I, you know, I've got these luscious feelings in my body and my mind and things feel clear and it's going to be, you know, it's like I've got a grip, you know, my concentration is so good, it could happen here. It doesn't happen there. It happens from this state. Right? So that tells you some important things about being willing to and committing yourself to develop the capacity to practice through these, you know, rocky trails, through these really hard things, these difficult things. So, you know, nothing um, is lost in practice at any point along the path. Any experience that you have in practice can be composted, can be put to good use by holding it within the big picture. Whatever disappointments that you have, whatever feelings of failure that you have, whatever judgments you have about yourself or about your practice. It's good to learn how to practice with it because there'll be plenty of it, (laughs) right? And that's the door, that's the door. The door is through learning to accept and include it all and to learn how to hold it with the same evenness of mind, 
remembering the primary instructions of simplicity, of observation at that simplest possible level. Seeing the inner control freak and learning that that's just an arising too. Seeing through it. So the rest of the path, the actual movement of the mind into unbinding, uh, that's secret sauce. But I hope um, these talks have offered enough that you uh, will consider it as part of uh, human potential, as part of your human potential Maybe not in the immediate term, maybe not in the short term, but within the range of what human beings, human minds, can learn how to do. And even if you don't get to high equanimity in this life, nothing is lost because the practice that's being done is ripening the paramis, is strengthening the sila, is reinforcing all the undergirding, the invisible undergirding of the psycho-emotional structure that actually, actually allows the mind to have the kind of strength and commitment to be able to push through to the end. So, I guess in closing, I just wish you all happy trails, even when the trail is really rocky. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.